0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. A couple decades ago, I saw a beautiful movie, and it has stayed with me over the years. Uh, The film is uh, rightly called uh, Life is Beautiful. And in the movie, there is a father and son. They're Jewish, and they are sent to a Nazi concentration camp. Upon arrival in the concentration camp, the father begins to create a narrative for his son so that his son can survive. And it says to the son, look, this is just a complicated game and we're going to play it together. Here's how it's going to work. There are certain tasks that I'm going to give you to do because he knew that there would be very important that the son did certain things right. There'd be certain tasks I'm going to give you to do. And when you accomplish that task and do it right away, you're going to get a point. And when you get a thousand points, and he points, you'll get a tank like that, which is very ironic, of course. And the son completely lives into this narrative. The son will later, in retrospect, say, that, what my father gave to me in that narrative, that was a gift he gave me. Now, the narrative wasn't entirely true, and The narrative didn't have complete power. I won't tell you the whole story. It's very worth watching. But it does display how incredibly influential, how much power and strength a narrative can have. And indeed, we have a father who has also given us a gift. It is a narrative that is absolutely true. Narratives come in lots of different shapes. They can come in lots of different sizes. There are big narratives, what scholars call meta-narratives. There's there's the big narrative of America, which right now is being debated among citizens. What is the story of America? There are more circumspect narratives that come between the covers of books, for example, or novels. The most powerful narrative... I would argue that when it comes to how you live your life, the most important narrative is the narrative you tell yourself. It's the narrative you called from narratives that have been told you, things that have been said about you, the larger world and culture. It's come together and it becomes a narrative that you tell yourself. You may not be aware that you're telling yourself a narrative. You may not even be aware that you're living within a personal narrative. But think about the things that you tell yourself when you're off your device for a little while and your mind just starts to go, or the thoughts that come into your head while you're driving. What do you think when you awaken first in the morning? What are maybe humorous phrases that you say about yourself, or maybe not humorous phrases, that you tell yourself regularly? Everyone has a narrative. question is, which narrative is influencing you? We need a narrative to make sense of our lives. What is yours? Get your Bibles. We'll be studying John chapter 3 together. And in John chapter 3, the big story around it, the bigger story around it is that there is a battle of the narratives happening here. What we see is that John's followers, and let's be clear about this just for a second, particularly if you're learning the Bible, this book is called John. It's written by John the Apostle, who is different than the John we're going to read about this morning, who is John the Baptizer. Although in this, we do get a section of John the Baptizer's teaching, which is really precious Uh, for many of us who are Bible geeks, because you don't get a lot of John the Baptist teaching. You get a lot of John's teaching, Peter's teaching, Paul's teaching, Jesus' teaching. We have a little sample of John the Baptist teaching, how he taught. And here we see that his followers, who are part of his ministry school, if you will, have a narrative of what's happening right now. We'll get into that. And John the baptizer has a counter-narrative, Their narrative is about how Jesus is threatening his work, and by extension, their work. John's narrative is about Jesus. And they clash. And that's what happens with our narratives. Is that we are all living in a battle of narratives. Very significant for your life. We'll get into our specific narratives in just a moment. But you're going to have a decision to make this morning. You're going to have a clarity to work through what is my narrative. You may have a repentance to make this morning, or even something even perhaps even even uh, more somewhat extraordinary, a kind of renunciation, this narrative taken not just a sinful place in your life, but it it has a profound power over your life. You need to renounce, perhaps, a narrative. But you won't be left bereft. You're given a narrative. Let's look at verses 25 to 26 first, where we need to know our narrative, know your narrative. Verses 25 to 26, verses 27 to 30, know his narrative. We'll focus on 25 to 30, so that'd be our main section here. Verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Background, Background to that, which we read this morning, is that John is baptizing and Jesus is baptizing in the same river, just different sections of the river. And some discussion arises. We don't know the content of that discussion. But I think we can safely surmise that, at the very least, there was some perhaps conflict that was happening there or something that stirred up John's disciples in that discussion with this Jew over purification, with Jesus teaching something different around purification, and John had taught them. When they understood John they be teaching, there was likely something. Because out of that conversation, we then read that they come to John. And John's disciples, and again, this is like his school, He's a rabbi, a teacher, who's gathered a school around him. His school is repentance. He's teaching on repentance. It's on baptism for repentance and purification. And then we have Jesus' school, which is also developing. He's also a rabbi. And people are gathering around Jesus. And they're looking at this going, hold on a second. You've got the John the Baptist brand and the Jesus brand. And now we're being threatened. As a matter of fact, we were here first. We were trying to capture America for coffee. We're Starbucks. Who's Dunkin'? Right? This is our place. This is our market share. And just in case we think, oh, how altruistic, I mean, there's stockholders in this brand. So if John decreases, their reputation decreases, their influence decreases. They aren't viewed the same way among the village elders or in the marketplace. There's a lot of energy going on here, there's a battle happening here. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, who came to you, he actually said, I must be baptized by you. Look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. What we see first in this narrative is that they have a narrative of competition. In the narrative of competition, it is win or lose. There are winners and there are losers in a narrative of competition. And many of us live in that narrative all the time. Now, it might be that you're in that narrative right now, and you're on the winning side. You're, you, you feel like you're a winner in the narrative of competition right now. How would you know that? Well, one way, if you can be honest with yourself, you might know that is you're bragging. But because you're a Western suburbanite, you're not bragging like this. I'm incredible. <laughs> you're not doing that. You're smarter than that. You're more sophisticated than that. You're more socially developed than that. But you're bragging. Did I tell you about my kid? Dot, dot, dot. Oh, man, I mean, the bonus I got this year, even in COVID. Wow. (laughs) You're finding ways, because you're winning right now, and you're in that narrative. Or maybe you're losing, as per the narrative. Maybe you don't feel great about your kids. You don't feel great about your work. You actually feel like you're not just losing. You actually think you are a loser. You tell yourself that. You were told that, and now you're telling yourself that. It's win or it's lose. It's a brutal narrative. It's a false narrative. There's another narrative happening underneath this, I think, in the the text. It's a sub-narrative, but it's actually a pretty pernicious one here. We know this because the way John corrects them. What John sees is not only are they in a narrative of competition, they're actually in a narrative of distrust of their authority. What's happening here is John's already taught them about Jesus. He's taught them that Jesus is Messiah. He's taught them that he's coming to prepare a way. He's he's quoted from Isaiah, the prophet, and others for them to understand. He's laid this into place, but they have seen the market share threat. They've seen the competition happening. They've lost their teaching. They don't trust John anymore. Ah, he's getting older. He's lost his edge. He really is crazy like everyone says he is. Who is this John the baptizer? We've got to step up. We've got to teach him what's going on. And John is saying, you yourselves, verse 28, an emphatic phrase in the original language, you yourselves heard me teach this. So underneath the narrative of competition is another false narrative, an even more subversive and pernicious narrative. We don't listen to those who teach us. We can't receive that. There are other narratives that many of us live in. I... Could honestly list two dozen. I could write them out. And I could highlight many of them, which are my own. We see an outsider narrative happening in just the next chapter, John chapter four. Jesus goes into Samaria. It's a different region and has a different ethnic identity from the Jewish regions, although the Samaritans are involved with a Jewish lineage. There's a woman there, women in the ancient Near East. We're it seriously outsiders. It was actually, so she's actually veering herself in ways that aren't completely inaccurate, and our narratives often have truths that feed into them. They're not completely false often. And she says to Jesus, who comes to her, who initiates with her, who engages her in dialogue, she says, "I am a Samaritan, I am a woman. What are you doing talking to me? I'm an outsider. That's my story. I'm on the outside of social circles. I'm on the outside of ethnic circles. I'm on the outside of worship circles. What are you doing?" But Jesus confronts her narrative. He comes into her narrative and says, I am speaking to you. I want to give you salvation. He disrupts her profoundly rooted outsider narrative to say, you're on the inside. I'm telling you stuff I haven't told my followers yet. I haven't taught this thing in my rabbinic school yet. And I'm telling you this thing. Yes, by some you're an outsider, but by me, you're inside. You're right here. And he confronts her narrative and shakes her world as she has to decide which narrative is true. God is coming to me and Jesus Messiah, or I will always be an outsider. Think of the great novel by C.S. Lewis, the horse and his boy. Catherine's used this beautifully in the past. There's a protagonist, Shasta. He has lived an unfortunate life, a brutal life, orphaned, abused, abandoned. But his narrative is, I am the most unfortunate boy that has ever lived. And the unfortunate narrative has incredible power because it is fueled often by true misfortune, as Shasta's was. But it's become his story. It's his narrative. It's his byline. It's his brand. And Aslan, the figure of the Messiah of Jesus, is with him. And Aslan says, tell me all of your misfortunes. And Shasta lists them with incredible articulation and a very strong injection of self-pity. And Aslan says, you are not unfortunate. I'm here. I've always been here, he says to the boy. You're not unfortunate. You're fortunate. Because I'm breaking in with my narrative. There are narratives of the world that may not even be internalized or that have come from voices close to us. There are narratives of the world. Right now, the world is crafting with billions of dollars and genius talent on multiple platforms, a narrative of identity and multiple narratives of identity. And it's coming into massive conflict with the narrative of God and the narrative of Jesus. These are narratives that can have so much power over us. We have to repent of them. We may have to renounce some of these narratives of identity that we've taken in. I know another narrative. I, I grew up with somebody, and I, they would always say, I'm just not smart enough. That's what they would always say. They would joke about it. They'd mention it when something didn't happen at work. They'd hope it would happen. They'd have it in school. I'm just not smart enough. Maybe you have a, I'm just not mm, enough. I'll give brief personal testimony. Many of us have, we, we say it's a long story, right? We say that. It's a long narrative. <laughs> many of us have long narratives. I, I've had a long narrative of rejection. It's just a narrative I've, I've lived. There's, there's some elements to it that are true, but it's been ingested. It's, it's, it's been worked through my soul for many, many years. Even in the last few days, In a prayer time, the Lord met me in that. (laughs) Praise the Lord. He confronted my false narrative. When He did that, I cried a lot. I cried a lot right in there, and I really hoped that nobody would walk in, and I really hoped that nobody was working in the sanctuary. Uh, Because when I cry like that, I cry loudly. But I was so relieved that I'd be released of that narrative. He comes into our narratives. How does he do this? Because he gives us his narrative. What's his narrative? Let's look at that together, verses 27 to 30. Uh, when John teaches, okay, so now, now we move into John's teaching. This is such good stuff. When John teaches, he gives two aspects to the gospel narrative, the good news of God and Jesus narrative. The first aspect is that, is that it is a narrative of receiving. And the second aspect John will teach is that it's a narrative of Decreasing. The narrative of receiving first. Look at this statement, you guys. And if you scratch your heads at this statement, I hope you do because it's just honest. Like it's hard to understand what John is teaching in his very first statement. It's kind of cryptic. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him or her from heaven. Okay, so first thing to know is that heaven is being used um, to sort of honor the holy name of God uh, by the writer, by John. But it would be from God. So what we don't want to have is some idea, because many of us think heaven are clouds, and that's another sermon for another time. Clouds are great, great, fine, but it's not heaven. So we think, oh, this must be like uh, like a holy helicopter comes along, drops a package, kunk, out of the heavens, and that's my gift. That's not helpful. That's not a helpful image for you. Let me use a metaphor that's closer to the, the theology John's teaching. This is much more... Like Jesus, like he came to the Samaritan woman, he comes to you one-on-one. He has that kind of time, by the way. And he looks at you, and you look at him. He has a face. You love his face when you see it. He's got a carved, beautiful wooden box. He's going to give it to you. And before he does, he opens the box, and in the box are golden coins. There might just be one coin in there. There might be ten coins in there. And you're already thinking, I wonder how many coins so-and-so got. And he, says, Don't. he says, I know you're already thinking about this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many coins people get. That's not what this is about. And he pulls a coin out, and you look at it, and on one side of it, it's his face, the face you're looking at. And you turn the coin over, and on the other side is a symbol, lots of different kinds of symbols, perhaps. One side is the gift of salvation. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then you flip it over, and it's the gift of your life work, or gifts that you're given to fill in a life purpose. The first thing we receive that John is talking about, we cannot receive even one thing within this context, we must be clear, are not gifts. It is the salvation and the rescue from the false narrative of our own sinful nature and of this world of the devil. It's a rescue, it's a salvation. It's the image of Jesus on that side of that coin that's the first gift you're given. Indeed, he says, unless a person be born again, they cannot receive the gift of salvation. Early John chapter 3. He'll say later, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus is the critical gift. He's the rescue gift. Indeed, Advent is an extended reflection on salvation, on being rescued from false narratives that pound us and diminish us. They don't, we don't decrease properly. We'll get into that. They diminish us. They denigrate us. They mock us. They lie to us. And what we have in salvation is a rescue from those narratives we have the power to say, that's a lie. That's a lie. I'm not unfortunate. I'm not, I'm not stuck as a loser or a winner. I reject that. You can't tell me my identity. My identity is sold in Jesus Christ. Bought with a price. That's salvation. That's the first gift. But then out of that gift comes something very personalized. Salvation is personal. Something very personalized for you. And I think in this context, and in the text, look at this with me. Not only is this receiving Jesus, but what is the argument, what, what is the confusion that his disciples bring to him about his work, about his purpose? That's the whole question that's being brought is, John, you're losing your purpose, you're losing your life work. It's being obscured by this person that's come after you. Jesus will use a phrase very similar to this. We don't know if he's working from John's teaching. We just don't know. But he'll say this to Pontius Pilate about his work, who's trying him at the crucifixion. Remember what he says? He says, you would have no power unless my Father in heaven gave it to you. So I think what we have in John's teaching is also a person can only receive the gifts for your life work that he's given to you. It's utterly underscored by the premise, every single follower of Jesus has a life work, a purpose, everyone. And you're given different gifts, different coins, to spend your life on that purpose. So another battle, a sub-battle within the great battle of the narratives is will you accept your gifts? Catherine's taught beautifully on this, and the virtue of acceptance is her teaching. Will you accept your gifts? How do you you work that through? Well, let me start with this. Start here. Will you accept the gifts you've not been given? In other words, will you accept what you've not been given? Will you accept who you aren't? Will you accept what you're not able to do? That's actually a wonderful, humble, decreasing place to start is, I'm actually not good at that, and I'm not good at that, and I'm not good at that which helps you also get clear though, but here I am been given this. This is part of my life work. Augustine, uh, he comments on this beautifully, early church thinker, theologian. Augustine says, think about John's phrase like this, I received something from heaven in order to be something. I received something from heaven from God in order to be something. So what are those, what are the symbols on that coin you've been given? You need to know that. That's how you battle the false narrative. OK, so later teens, 20s, 30s. let me speak to you guys first. That, this is an era of tumult around uh, receiving and accepting the gifts you've been given. You don't, you're not sure what the gifts are. You're not sure if you like them. You're not sure what to do with them. It is a time of tumult. It's, it's a time of movement. It can be a very exciting time, but it can be a very challenging time. There's a lot of heartburn that can happen around this issue in your 20s and 30s. So what do you do? There's lots of things to do. Let me just give one thing. Go the opposite of John's followers and actually trust your elders to help you. Trust your elders, your spiritual moms and dads, your moms and dads, your aunties and uncles, your pastors, your res group leaders. Ask them, what do you think the gifts are that I've been given? You've known me, and if you don't have somebody who knows you that way, then move into a relationship through our different ministries so that you are known that way. Would you tell me? And they will get it 100% right. They don't have ultimate power over your life, but like John— He knew his followers, but they weren't actually receiving his teaching. So humble yourself, submit yourself, and ask. That's one important way to learn. Okay, now maybe you're riper, more mature, older. What about us? Well, on one hand, we may still be figuring that out. Do the same thing if you're still figuring that out. On the other hand, it may be that we've known and we just need to be encouraged that these gold coins never diminish. The gifts never stop coming from the Lord. It's not that they may be always new gifts. It's just they're renewed in the Lord. And also, what if you understood this better and you've been through the fires of learning how God wants to use you, so then you realize part of discipling the next generation is helping them learn these things. Being the people that they can go to, to say, ah, I'm not sure what I can do. And even helping them do it well. So even doing that as an older generation, you get to decrease more and they get to increase in the ministry of the Lord. But I just, there's a beautiful illustration, living illustration, of receiving the gifts from heaven that have been given, accepting what's been given, accepting what's not been given, right here in our community. You've never heard her preach a sermon. I don't think you've ever seen her up here, although she has served the church and even served on our staff for 15 years. She knows well the first coin of the image of Jesus because she was saved powerfully and radically by God 15 years ago. And she had a dramatic return to Jesus in his church. To me, one of the heroes of decreasing, one of the heroes of receiving has been Ann Kessler. She's our executive director of operations. Many of you haven't had a conversation with her or know her. She's fine with that. She'd love to talk to you. But she has received and accepted the salvation of God. And she accepted her gifts. And she's like... I help administrate Church of the Resurrection. I help find financial processes happen. And now I help other churches have the same thing. I help ensure there's financial health and operational health in this church so that many people may not know we're breathing, but we're breathing. That's what Anne does. She's a hero, a heroine of this. John's not done. He says, also though, in the narrative of receiving, there's a narrative of decreasing. If you are familiar with the Bible at all, you're familiar with this verse, he must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, now, you will find this on the back of many high school, Christian high school sports t-shirts or youth group t-shirts. And it's great. It should be there. It's a great verse. But I'd like to get it off the back of a t-shirt. I'd like to get it in here. Some of you are too familiar with this verse. What is this decreasing? Well, it's important that that the decreasing teaching— he must increase, but I must decrease. It's taught within a larger story, which is one of the great stories of the Bible, and one of the great narratives, which is the narrative of the wedding. It wasn't like John just went, ah, I don't know, let me think of a metaphor. Ah, it's like a wedding. No, 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 no. The, but the biblical sweep, Genesis to Revelation, is about a wedding. Over and over again, we're told about weddings. We're told that God is like a bridegroom. In Hosea chapter 2, God is like a bridegroom. Israel is his bride. And then the church is grafted into that gift and that inheritance. And Paul picks that up in Ephesians chapter 5 five, that the whole story is of God loving humanity so much in and through Israel, and then in his church, that he wants to be wedded to them. He wants to be that close to them. Marriages and weddings are not a metaphor of God. I mean, they're a metaphor of God. God isn't somehow a metaphor of those. It all stems from that. That's the great story. That's the great narrative that confronts our petty narratives, our small narratives, our pernicious narratives. That's the great story John says. It's like there's a great wedding. He says It's like you have actually two different things you get to be in that wedding. One is you're the bride. You're the beloved, adored, cherished, beautiful bride. And you also get to be the best man or the maid of honor. And best men, maid, maid of honor in ancient Near East were a whole lot busier than today. This is not an insult to best men or maids of honor. You're wonderful. We think you're great. You dress up. You walk down this aisle and you stand here. That's great. Maybe you give the priest the ring or something like that. I don't know. You were way busier in this world. Alright? You set up the wedding. You organized the wedding. You made sure that the food was there. The wine was there. You made sure that the bridegroom was set up. That the bride was set up. You made sure that they, they met at the right time. You were coordinating and assisting and running around everywhere. And you were celebrating always the bridesmaid. Never the bride, so to speak. You're also the bride. You get it. You loved that you could live assistance. You love it because you get to be a part of the wedding, and you know that you're not the bridegroom. And John says, that's it. That's the narrative of decreasing. He must increase. But how does he even increase? How does Jesus increase? What does his increase look like? Decrease. He empties himself, the apostle Paul teaches in Philippians 2. He empties himself, he self-limits his life, becomes a complete human being. He decreases to the point of a soft-skinned infant of an embryo in his mother's womb, he decreases to that place. He decreases to a daily life lived as a human being with all the limitations, all the temptations, all the hungers, all the challenges. He's not tempted unto sin, but he's tempted. He lives that whole life. And then he decreases at the apex of his life is the apex of his decrease, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is how he increases. This is what the increase of God looks like is the cross. I do not diminish you, but decrease with me. Make yourself small with me. Make yourself daily with me. Die with me. So that actually as we decrease, we join him in decrease. It isn't like he's one place and we're another place. He brings us into that place with him. So as you decrease, and he increases, repent. Repent of a false narrative you have believed about yourself, something you're telling yourself. Renounce a narrative that's come from a place other than the scriptures that you're somehow feeding on and social media gorging on. Renounce the lies that you have believed that are influencing you. And then, not for a moment, must you be empty handed because then you receive, you take the narrative. And in that, your joy, your utter joy, will be full. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast.